Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Uh, it's Dr. Casey Patrick joining you again, and with me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Uh, Casey, and Casey on the boards today for everybody out there. Uh, if the audio quality is not exactly where it is with Andy, we do have a doctor running the master board here. I'm just uh, saying. It's uh, tough to learn how to hit a couple buttons. I'm <laughs> Lots of buttons. Trying to figure out which ones to hit, which ones not to hit. We won't tell the story about the episode that we recorded a couple weeks ago. Or at least we thought we recorded and handed the uh, uh, blank disc to Andy and he cackled uh, down the hallway because there was no recording on there. So today we did hit record, as you can tell, and we're going to talk to the listeners out there today about hypertensive emergencies, when we treat elevated blood pressure in the field and in the emergency department setting, really, this, is, this extends across emergency care, and the concept of end organ damage and it's a concept that has uh, evolved and changed really over the past probably 15 or 20 years uh, if you went to your doctor back in the 90s and your blood pressure was 200 over 100 and you felt fine your doctor would probably still correct your blood pressure to a quote unquote i'm making quotes here a normal range and this was normal treatment this is what what we what we did for patients and then what did we find out yeah and i i would i would argue that it's still to some extent right the bane of every emergency provider and primary care providers uh practice their existence right is because the expectation of patients is oh i feel bad i took my blood pressure it's high ergo we should treat said blood pressure and i'll feel better instead of investigating why you feel bad and so this topic has an incredible amount of uh, appeal to me because this is a very common conversation I have with patients in the ED and how I ended up is I say, Mr. Patrick, you know, we want to treat your blood pressure over five, 10 or 15 years to keep you from having a heart attack or stroke in five, 10 or 15 years, not in five, 10 or 15 seconds, right? Because people think that if their blood pressure is high, they're going to immediately have a stroke, a heart attack, some other untoward event. And why do we think this, you know, and this is great science. This goes back to an old VA study from 1970. So they took VA patients, and this is before we knew if blood pressure medication actually benefited and decreased cardiovascular risk in patients. So we randomized these, these VA patients to with terrible blood pressure. The average diastolic case, he was 115 when they came into the trial, right? And so they randomized them to blood pressure control versus a placebo. And so we all know where this goes, that we know that treating the blood pressure over time decreased the cardiovascular complications and the mortality in these patients. But the more important thing to me in this study is when was the first adverse event, right? These are patients who were randomized with incredibly high, worrisome numbers. And the first event was months after the, the initiation of the randomization. So that just can, kind of confirms my, my theory here and my, my thought is that this is a long-term damage that causes these ICHs. This is long-term vascular damage that causes strokes and hemorrhages and these other awful complications, kidney failure that we're going to talk about. Uh, and I think that ASEP, our uh, uh, governing kind of uh, professional body, has embraced this, as have other practice guidelines, and said, hey, guys, in the asymptomatic patient without 
without any evidence of end organ damage. We're going to go into each and give examples of, of end organ damage, right? We don't need to to lower the blood pressure acutely. And in fact, we may be harming patients or putting them at risk for harm by lowering their blood pressure acutely if they're used to living at a high number. So as we perfuse our brains, kind of how it works in this whole thing of auto-regulation, my understanding of it, Casey, and the, the simple way that I think about it is that throughout our lives, our blood vessels that supply the brain are able to provide a consistent cerebral blood flow to perfuse that tissue over a wide range of blood pressures, high and low. But as we age, we lose the autoregulatory ability to do that. Can you talk about that for a second and autoregulation and how that may be harmful if we lower blood pressure in our elderly patients? Yeah, so just re really quick to, to recap, I think there were some, some key points uh, that Dr. Dixon made there. Number one, there's a big break point cutoff when we talk about treating blood pressures in an emergency setting. And the first thing that you want to ask yourself as a provider is, is the patient symptomatic or asymptomatic? And to know what the symptoms of end organ damage are, we have to know what the end organs are and what those symptoms look like. And we're going to go through that. But just from a general standpoint, we, we did, you know, 20 years ago, common practice to lower the blood pressure in asymptomatic patients. We still see patients in the EMS and the ED setting that want their 200 blood pressure lowered. And we still see call reviews. I have partners that still will treat those numbers. And I think going back to the very beginning, we treat patients and not numbers. Now those numbers are part of the patient profile, but they're not 100%. What, what is autoregulation? That is just the fact that our blood vessels get used to whatever afterload we, we're, we exist in, whatever blood pressure we exist in. So if we're at 210 over 110 for months and for years, we're not used to existing at 110 over 50. So we don't adapt. I think of, I think of autoregulation is the adaptability of the vasculature, of the smooth muscle in the wall of that blood vessel. And if we're 14 and we're healthy, we're 24 and we're healthy, we're 34 and we're healthy, we can probably tolerate 230 down to 120 and, and in between. But as we age and our vascular vasculature becomes more stiff and we subject it to higher pressures, and let's say those are really high pressures for extended periods, then we're not going to adapt to 120 over 60 very well. And that's where the watershed stroke uh, phenomena comes in. And that's just a stroke that's not an embolic stroke. It's not a hemorrhagic stroke. It's not a thrombotic stroke. It's a stroke from hypoperfusion. And why is 120 over 60 hypoperfusion? It's because those vessels had adapted to 220 over 120 for the previous year or two or three when the hypertension had been untreated. So if you've been 200 over 100 per year, we don't want you to be at 120 over 60. Not only is that not helpful, it's we have data and literature that's well vetted and and available that says that's harmful. So again, when are we gonna treat blood pressure in an EMS emergency setting? We're gonna treat it in situations where end organ compromise exists. So before we get to the end organ symptoms we wanna watch for, let's roll into the, the end organs. Um, and those are gonna be the brain, kinda hit on that already, the lungs, the heart, the aorta, the placenta, and the kidneys. And so when you approach end organ damage, think of the end organs Brain, lungs, heart, aorta, placenta, and kidneys. And I'm going to toss the brain and organ symptoms to uh, to my uh, stroke-loving uh, colleague, 
Rowind, Rowind, uh, end organ damage and stroke. Uh, there's there's a lot of, much, lot of, lot of tidbits my here. Favorite. So I think we're talking Casey, when we talk about the brain, let's split it up, right? Let's talk hemorrhagic and ischemic. We all know it's about the 80, 20 rule, ischemic 80% versus 20% hemorrhagic and understanding that most of the hemorrhagic, uh, strokes, the, the predominant ones are uh, hypertensive bleeds. So they're interparenchymal. They're the ones that on a CT look like a little well-defined golf ball. They're inside, usually in the inside of the brain parenchyma itself. And they're from chronic wear and tear in the blood vessels from extremely high blood pressure, not necessarily one episode of extreme high blood pressure. And the reason we treat the blood pressure is a little bit different in each one. In a hemorrhagic stroke, we know that lowering the blood pressure to a certain level, and that level is pretty much defined. I'm, I'm going to go between 120 and 140 because our experts, you know, at, at Ben Taub, that when you ask different people, you read different things, but generally we want to lower to that number. And why is that? Because we want to decrease the blood volume and decrease the mass effect in the brain injury caused by the hemorrhage itself by lowering that blood pressure, right? So in a hemorrhage, we're lowering the blood pressure acutely to try to decrease uh, that blood flow and decrease that mass effect uh, and cerebral edema that comes after a bleed. In ischemic, it's different. The, really, the only reason to treat blood pressure in ischemic stroke is to simply make, get them in the window to make them a candidate for reperfusion therapy, whether that be chemical or TPA, the clot-busting drug, or endovascular therapy, and thank goodness we've had consistency here. That number for treatment is the same. It's 185 over 110. So you have to get it less than 185 over 110 before we can initiate the reperfusion therapy. So our goal there is to decrease the blood pressure, usually 10 to 20% range in ischemic stroke, so we can get them into the window for treatment uh, for endovascular and just to be or, really, really clear and to say it again, because I think this is a, an important point that can get missed at times. We are not lowering ischemic stroke to normal blood pressure. We are lowering ischemic stroke below that threshold value of 185 over 110 to allow definitive treatment Absolutely. upon arrival Absolutely. to the hospital. Absolutely. And, and why does that number exist? It exists because we know that the complication rate, the bleeding complication rates go up at a level higher than that in blood pressure. And this is highly debated uh, in uh, amongst providers. Uh, I think that it's generally agreed upon that's a rational approach for EMS systems. And that's what we do here at MCHD. If you have symptoms of acute stroke, we lower your blood pressure to try with a goal of getting it beneath 185 over 110. We do not, if it's, if it's beneath that already, we do not treat blood pressure in expected stroke. And from a pharmacological standpoint, uh, here at MCHD, we prefer levetalol, multiple reasons, uh, fairly easy to dose and shorter acting as well. So we're not giving a longer acting medication like a conidine or hydralazine that's going to drop your pressure for hours. If we do drop below that autoregulation threshold, the drug's going to be out of your system pretty quickly. So that's the advantage that we see there. Correct? Right. I love the short acting and it's the same thing, right? We hedge our bets the same way in ED and ICU, right? The, the therapy of choice is usually we swap these patients so we can get immediate short acting control to a nicardipine drip. Quick, quick on and off. Yep. So that's, that's first end organ brain. The second we're going to hit on, I'll take this one. Uh, this one is uh, more of my baby, and we'll talk about uh, pulmonary end organ damage, 
specifically uh, sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema patients. This is the manifestation of uh, end organ damage, hypertensive emergency uh, from a lung standpoint. And we talked about acute pulmonary edema on the, on the podcast before. Uh, go back and uh, check out our uh, uh, CHF1 and CHF2 podcast for, for more details. I'm not going to belabor uh, what we've already said there. But hypertension plus respiratory distress, uh, rouse, pedial edema, um, history of hypertension, CHF, that's, that's the patients we're looking at with sympathetic crashing, acute pulmonary edema. And from a bigger picture, these folks are sick. Tripoding, cyanotic, diaphoretic. Uh, they're not telling you about their cat litter box that needs changed or they're uh, you know, packing their suitcase or they forgot their medicine box. These, these, these folks are sick. And the key to treating these patients is aggressive preload and afterload reduction. So we want to relax the venous side. We want to relax the arterial side so we can decrease the preload and decrease the afterload. And our pharmacologic agent of choice here at MCHD is nitroglycerin. I'm sure that a lot of you listeners out there use nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin as well in these patients. Um, the difference in, in our, our thought here is that we feel like that IV nitroglycerin bolus is, is a, a preferred method of administering nitro. Basically, it is quicker onset and... That's just more rapidly effective. I mean, these patients get pretty immediate yeah, relief. So in my clinical experience with it, and I, I use it in my clinical practices, within minutes of giving a dose or two of this, the patient we do see, sometimes I see a variable decrease of 10 to 20% in the, in the blood pressures. But more than that, Casey, regardless of the blood pressure, I see an immediate symptomatic relief in the patient. In all the patients that I've given this to, I've not had to, to uh, put one on the ventilator. And the vast majority of them, if indeed I ever put them on non-invasive, I'm able to easily translate them off non-invasive. So it's a great, great immediate veno and arterial dilator, decreases preload, decreases afterload, and really gives these patients a ton of symptom, symptomatic relief. Yeah, just speaking to the, to the variability of sublingual and topical uptake is one of the big problems with not using IV nitroglycerin in these patients is oftentimes they're dry uh, from an oropharyngeal standpoint because they've got a BiPAP mask stuck right. in their we, face. We've, we, all, we've all taken the mask right. off them in the obtunded uh, CHF in the escape patient and like parts of tablets are tumbling out of their mouth and they have like yeah, paste, gooey paste that's uh, their diaphoresis is more slid, soft. Slid and, down onto the onto the yeah. cot. So we'll uh, talk more, I'm sure, in the coming months. We've been in the process of uh, data collection after we rolled out our IV nitro bolus protocol here at MCHD. And hopefully we have good news for the listeners uh, in the coming months. And finally, to wrap up, pulmonary edema, scape, your lung end organ patients rolling into the cardiac side so your brain your lungs your heart don't forget in these acutely short of breath gate patients that ekg can be your best friend because infarct can push you over into acute pulmonary edema so cardiac end organ damage and scape really go together they really do i mean you, you one, can't affect one without the other exactly um so really scape is a combo um, and, you know, the kidneys thrown in there as well. You've got spiraling sympathetic surge, cascade of endogenous catecholamines, and disruption of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So really, it's a heart-lung-kidney issue that spirals downhill. So in a scape standpoint, we want to think about IV bolus nitroglycerin. We want to really, like Dr. Dixon said, quick vasodilation. 
after load and preload reduction. From an acute MI standpoint, not all acute MIs, as you know, listeners have taken care of plenty of these, not all acute MIs progress to scape, right? Some of these acute MIs are just lateral anterior elevation with severely elevated blood pressures. And that they may not have the respiratory side of scape, but you may see a STEMI with a pressure of 190 over 90. So what do you do with that patient? Is that patient having chest pain, STEMI, markedly elevated blood pressure? Is that end organ damage? Yes, it is. Um, and how will we classically treat that patient? We classically give them nitrates, right? Sublingual yeah. nitrates. But they are, Love it, you get a two for one. Yep. But they're also, again, they're not, they don't have a BiPAP mask strapped to their face. Most of the time, those patients aren't in extremis. So they're, they're better fit to start with sublingual, sublingual nitrates. You know, classically, from a, an acute CHF standpoint, not speaking to SCAPE specifically, but speaking to acute CHF, beta blockers have been taught to be contraindicated in those, those cases, really because of, in a cardiogenic shock standpoint, probably not a good idea. We're not talking about beta blockers here. We're talking more about nitrates. So from a SCAPE standpoint, IV quickly. From an acute MI standpoint, we can probably, if we're not in respiratory stress and extremis, we can start with uh, sublingual topical nitrates. How about brain, lungs, heart? Talk about the aorta for just a second. This is a tough one from an EMS standpoint. When we think about the aorta, we think about end organ damage and markedly elevated blood pressure. Patients present with ripping, tearing chest pain to the back and down into the abdomen. We're talking about thoracic aortic dissection. And the aorta is under such extreme wall stress due to that hypertension that the wall tears and the blood dissects between the layers, uh, the three layers being the intima, the media, and the externa. That blood can re-enter the aorta, creating a false lumen, and it can also dissect uh, both into the mediastinum, retrograde uh, into the, uh, back into the pericardial sac, in and around the coronary vessels. It can dissect in an anterograde or forward fashion and uh, obstruct the renal vessels, uh, the offshoots, you know, the supply of the carotids and the, and the cerebral vessels. Um, so wide variation of effects that can happen with thoracic dissection. And presentation, right? This, yeah. is a, this is a widely variable presentation. These patients, as Dr. Patrick said, uh, can dissect up into their cerebral vessels. And so they can present with stroke. I've had them present with strokes. I've had them present with ischemic limbs. I've had them present with ischemic gut. I've had them uh, present with hemopericardium and pericardial effusion. So this is a very difficult diagnosis to, to make. Not one from an EMS setting that we're, we're expecting any of our medics uh, here at MCHD to make, but just in the full discussion of what are the end organs, we have to consider the aorta from in a hospital setting when we, when we ex suspect uh, thoracic aortic dissection. This is a patient we're primarily going to target with beta blockers to reduce the, pul the pulse pressure right. is the goal there. So let's, uh, let's move on into our last couple and we'll, we'll close it out. Uh, final two end organs we're going to talk about, placenta, kidneys, take the placenta for us. Right. So placenta, right. We all talk about eclampsia and preeclampsia and eclampsia. What is that? You know, it is elevated blood pressure and, and usually a third trimester or any woman that's, uh, pregnant over 20 weeks is, is a candidate for this. Anyone with pressure 140 over 90 with essentially any symptoms. This is really tightened up over the last couple of years to where if you have, you're in the third trimester, you have a blood pressure of greater than 140 on 90 and you have headache, you have uh, peripheral edema, you have abdominal pain, you have some other symptom. 
by definition, you are preeclamptic and we should be treating those patients. Why do we treat them? We want to treat them so they don't progress to eclampsia, which is this elevated blood pressure and this systemic disease that causes seizures. Once they have a seizure, then by definition, they have eclampsia. How do we treat this by MCHD? Uh, we start with magnesium, two grams of magnesium sulfate with an option to use, use labetalol uh, as an adjunct to this. So that's preeclampsia. Eclampsia, it's essentially end organ damage of the uh, fetus and the placenta. Third trimester, greater than 140 over 90, really with any symptom. Yeah, and it's pretty variable. I would add, too, don't don't forget that if the patient is seizing, uh, benzos are going to be an option. Correct. And uh, preeclampsia and eclampsia both can occur in the postpartum setting as well. Um, so four to six weeks, even a little further than that out, post-delivery, both both can occur. And if you want more info on that, uh, listen back to the, to the OB podcast we released a couple months ago. Yeah. So let's talk about kidneys. Let's pivot to the kidneys. I got the really sexy ones here. You know, we're not talking about, it's kind of like trying to, to diagnose dissections in the field, right? I'm not out to diagnose the person who has had elevated blood pressure, Casey, where their creatinine of normals less than 1.2 has gone from 1.2 to 2.5, right? That's usually not the patient we're talking about here. Where we're talking about where it's a hypertensive kind of crisis emergency is the patient usually with complete renal failure. We know these patients, they're on dialysis, they've missed their dialysis, they plus minus been taking their blood pressure tablets, their blood pressure is extremely elevated, they have pulmonary edema, they have lung end organ. So those are the patients I like to, to focus on more and I would pivot right back to treating them exactly like your scape patient. I use IV nitrates, it works very, very well. On that note, with these type of, of risky patients, always, always, always we get an EKG, why? Because what, what lives with kind of acute hypertensive crisis in these dialysis patients and these uh, chronic renal failure patients, right? Hyperkalemia, so we really wanna look for those signs of hyperkalemia on the cardiogram, peak T's, conduction delays, wide, bizarre, bradycardic rhythms yep. should, should make you highly suspicious. Yeah, if you think about why they, why they progressed from being a regular ESRD patient to a pulmonary edema patient, it's because they, they don't have any way to rid the volume. Right. So they missed their dialysis, their volume increases, pulmonary symptoms, but at the same time, they've also not been able to filter their potassium as well. So those two like you said, uh, live side by side. And clinically, I will tell you, I've had, I'll give you a, I'll give you a teaser away for your, your study results or your preliminary. I won't totally give it away, doctor, but I have great, great success with this therapy bridging my uh, chronic renal failure patients until we can get them in line for hemo. You know, I've not had to intubate one of them. Most of them I take off non-invasive pretty quickly after this. So they do very, very well with this therapy and it bridges them uh, to their, the ultimate therapy that they need is usually dialysis. So real quick to recap, end organs are brain, lungs, heart, aorta, placenta, and kidneys. We've not talked about some classic hypertensive patients before we close out. And I just want to bring these up to circle back to why we had this discussion in the first place. 80-year-old female, a little bit nauseated, feels sick to her stomach, call DMS because she's just not getting any better. Crews arrive on scene, take her blood pressure. She's 190 over 90, and her EKG is nonspecific without ST elevation. 78-year-old male, headache for two days, out of his blood pressure meds, missing his lisinopril and his metoprolol. He's 190 over 90 with a GCS of 15 and a normal neural exam. 66-year-old lady, weak, 
all over, dizzy and lightheaded for three hours. Blood pressure's 200 over 100. Normal speech, normal gait, no stroke signs, no elbow signs. So take those three patients together. They all have pressures of 190 over 90, 200 over 100, and they have symptoms. But are they symptoms of end organ damage? And how would you how right? Would, how would you and I go right those? back to I. I think a lot of it is taking time to educate the patients about because we drill this into their heads, don't we? That if they take this blood pressure, if their blood pressure is high, it's on every billboard. Every doctor tells them that. Be careful of your blood pressure, Casey, because you'll have a heart attack, a stroke, fill in the badness, right? And we need to educate. We can tell them that, which is very true. But we need to add in 5, 10, or 15 years, not in 5, 10, or 15 minutes. And that's the scripting that I use for that for patients. Uh, I think that most patients will get that when you talk to them about it. And, and what we're really trying to do is long-term control to prevent those cardiovascular outcomes that we are trying to avoid. And there are stragglers out there. I think there are emergency physicians. There are primary physicians. Oh, they exist. There are paramedics that exist that, that want to control these blood pressures emergently. And I say it a little bit differently. I say all three of those patients that I just described, they all need blood pressure control. I'm not saying they don't need blood pressure control. They just don't need emergent blood pressure control, right? And, they need urgent. Right. And I think, I think the thing that we miss too, guys, is when you think about it, we always talk at MCHD and, and when we teach this, right? Look for the underlying cause. Our job is out there to sort out what is the primary issue, right? Is their blood pressure super high because they have missed their blood pressure medicines or do they have a toxin withdrawal, early sepsis? So there's lots of other, keep your differential wide in these patients. I'm not so concerned with treating their number of their blood pressure in those last couple of patients you gave. I'm more concerned with what is the underlying issue. Do we have stroke, sepsis, a toxin withdrawal, some other abnormality here that we need to deal with? So yeah, think, think about your end organs, right? With the brain, think about a stroke or an ICH. And if a patient has a GCS of 15 and a mild headache and a normal neural exam, they probably aren't having an ICH. Unlikely. Unlikely. If they have uh, a little general weakness and are lightheaded and they have normal speech, normal gait, no stroke signs, they're probably not having an elbow, right? Your elbow screen is going to be negative there. Um, so think about the end organs. Think about specifically if patients have signs of those end, organ, end organs being damaged and then treat with the appropriate meds. And what are the appropriate meds going to be for the brain from a stroke standpoint? Here at MCHD, labetalol, lungs, heart, nitrates, 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 nitrates. nitrates um, topical or IV, depending on their level of severity. In the hospital setting, we're going to treat aortic dissection with labetalol. Um, from the placenta standpoint, magnesium, plus or minus benzodiazepines or labetalol, depending on the, the severity. And most of the time, that creatinine bump from 1.5 to 2.5 is absolutely going to be an in-hospital diagnosis. But to wrap that back around, if they're an end-stage renal disease patient who's missed dialysis and who's short of breath and tripoding and sick, they're really a, an acute pulmonary edema scape patient, and we can use IV nitrates in them. Um, and I'll close it out just, you know, rapid blood pressure lowering in asymptomatic patients. Not only is it not helpful, it can and will absolutely harm patients. So we're treating patients. We're not treating numbers. Remember to think about end organ damage. Think about the specific end organs and the symptoms that occur with damage to them. And hopefully that gives you a structure, a framework to use going forward. As always, thanks for listening. That wraps up our time here. Thanks, Dr. Dixon, for joining us. 
Uh, we'll be talking to everyone soon with another episode. If you have questions or concerns, please email us at the podcast email. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.